Welcome to another George Consortium COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing presented by our colleagues around the country in association with Public Health Watch at Northeastern University and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor at Indiana University School of Law. Joining me today are Professor Wendy Parmet from Northeastern University School of Law and Professor Maida Makluf from Penn State Dickinson Law. We'll be taking questions towards the end of the broadcast, so please just ask them at P-H-L-A-W-W-A-T-C-H, at P-H-Law-Watch. So from the president's uh, much-publicized China travel ban um, through last week's Supreme Court public charge ruling, immigration has sort of intersected with the COVID-19 narrative. So let's start with you, Wendy. How have the debates over immigration uh, helped to frame the U.S.'s response to COVID-19 or even sort of vice versa? Thank you, Nick. Um, So immigration law has, immigration, I should say, really has framed the response to the pandemic in the U.S., Um, And it's probably not surprising that it has done so. Immigration law has long been used or misused in an effort to keep diseases out. And pandemics, epidemics, have long been used as a pretext to limit immigration. Just for one example, think about the decades-long ban on HIV-positive non-nationals coming to the United States, right? We, even though HIV was quite prevalent in the U.S., immigrants with HIV or non-nationals were not allowed to enter the United States. Given this history and the Trump administration's hard line on immigration, I don't think it's as surprising that the administration saw the pandemic as a problem presented by foreigners that could be contained by keeping foreigners out, both immigrants and travel. So, for example, in late January, as you mentioned, President Trump barred non-U.S. nationals traveling from China from entering the U.S. But what I want to emphasize is this wasn't a ban on travel from China. It was a ban on Chinese citizens and other non-U.S. citizens who were in China coming from the U.S. And so the assumption was that the disease um, followed passport rather than, you know, where someone actually traveled. And Later, the administration extended such bans to non-nationals traveling from Iran and then Europe. More recently, the CDC has barred asylum seekers at the border, again, seeing the um, danger as residing within foreigners as opposed to being a problem that anyone can bring the disease in. Perhaps the greatest problem with this approach is it permitted this illusion that the disease could be controlled or contained if we just kept non-U.S. nationals outside. And this really, I think, helps to explain why the United States was so just fatally unprepared for the disease, because we thought if we could keep them out, we'd be okay. And so we didn't look for community spread. Indeed, even early on, testing in the United States was limited to people who had traveled from China. The idea that the disease was spreading within the U.S. was really overlooked. Um, The immigration has intersected with the pandemic in other ways, as I think we're going to discuss. It has left immigrant communities in the United States in a particularly vulnerable position. And of course, with a pandemic of contagious disease, if any community is vulnerable, we're all vulnerable because disease spreads.
spread out. And so our immigration lens has really, I think, in a lot of different ways, undermined our capacity to confront the pandemic, both at the border and inside the country. So let's concentrate a little bit more on um, sort of the legal source of these rules. You mentioned the CDC's interim foreign quarantine rule. Um, The president uh, recently put into place a 60-day ban on immigration that got changed the next day and came back the day after or something. Um, What are these rules doing? What are the sources, the legal sources of these rules? Well, primarily the president has actually been relying on his authority under the Immigration and Nationalization Act, um, except for the CDC ban, which we'll talk about in a sec. Um, Most recently, as you mentioned, the president issued a proclamation that purports to ban the issuance of green cards for 60 days. Interestingly, he claimed that this was really more designed to protect the economy during the pandemic and save jobs for Americans than to actually direct public health. One of the interesting things about this proclamation is I think it's a lot of show and not actually a lot of substance. Um, First, it included a lot of different exceptions. Um, It didn't apply to those who were already inside the country. It doesn't apply to spouses, children of U.S. citizens. Um, It um, doesn't apply to people who already have visas and travel documents. And anyway, most consulates outside of the country are already closed, right? So there weren't a lot of green cards being issued. And as Maida will talk about later, that we already have a public charge rule and other things in effect that are making immigration very difficult. Um, So it's, you know, it's a great big show. We're doing something. But how many additional people are actually going to be barred for this? It's, I think, fewer than we might imagine. I I do think that the CDC interim rule, which you just mentioned, uh, interim final rule, is perhaps more important in the moment. Um, The rule was issued under the auspices of Section 265 of the Public Health Services Act, which is where CDC gets its authority. This is not on its face an immigration rule. And it allows CDC to bar non-nationals to entering the country from countries the CDC has designated as having a communicable disease. What I think is very troubling to me, you know, two points about this act that are very troubling. First, it's being used um, to keep out asylum seekers and to even have them returned to Mexico, even without being processed or having any information being taken. But secondly, uh, you know, from a public health law perspective, we are now really seeing CDC intermingling and getting into the immigration business, right? I mean, if a disease is in a, if a quarantinable disease is in another country, that's a reason to have a quarantine at the border. It's not a reason to designate non-nationals as not entering. That's an immigration issue, right? And now CDC is looking at passport status. That's new and it's troubling because it's not a public health issue, right? The public health science doesn't tell you that diseases discriminate by passports. And so now we're seeing CDC is really sort of being used in the auspices of the 
Department of Homeland Security and Immigration Enforcement. And that's a new step that's happened during this pandemic, which I think is a very troubling step. And I think the sort of the pretextual nature of um, these bans has been emphasized by, if you believe the reports about the the call that the uh, president's advisor had with conservative groups saying that it it may say 60 days on the the face of it, but um, uh, in the book, it's it's going to be permanent. So we've mentioned public charge a couple of times. Uh, The public charge uh, rules went into effect in late February, um, sort of coincident with the pandemic uh, uh, being felt wildly, widely in the US. So can you, Meta, you know, take us through public charge 101 and then extend through to talking about what the rule does and how it's impacting um, the pandemic or the pandemic narrative? Sure. So uh, the public charge rule is a new interpretation of a longstanding immigration law that basically restricts the admission of certain non-citizens based on the likelihood that they'll become dependent on the government. Now, the new rule uh, expanded the scope of public charge inadmissibility in two significant ways. So first, uh, it made the use of federally funded public benefits a more significant negative factor in the public charge analysis, right, of whether someone is uh, going to be be dependent on the government for support. The second major thing it did was it expanded the types of public benefits that are considered in the analysis. So under the old rule, um, the public charge analysis looked at um, use of benefits that provided cash assistance or long-term care only. The new rule also considers use of Medicaid, NAP, or what most people know as food stamps, and um, subsidized housing programs. Now, the public charge rule is very complex and I've greatly oversimplified it here, but I just want to note two important things before I talk about it in the context of the pandemic. Um, first, there are a lot of people who aren't subject to the public charge inadmissibility test, but who think that they are. So public charge inadmissibility primarily affects people who are applying for lawful permanent resident status or green card, um, not people who are applying to become U.S. citizens, not people who have already naturalized or become U.S. citizens. And in addition, there are exemptions from the entire public charge test for uh, certain categories of immigrants like refugees, asylees, and other humanitarian immigrants. So public charge should not be a concern for them. Um, The second thing I want to point out is um, that there are public benefits that non-citizens can use that won't be considered in a public charge determination, um, including emergency medical assistance, which I'll talk about um, in a bit. Um, Nevertheless, you know, the major effect of this rule has been to chill immigrants from enrolling in public benefits that would support their health. Now, in terms of the impact of the public charge rule during the pandemic, um, there have been many news stories about how the chilling effects of the public charge rule have persisted uh, during this time. And the bottom line is really that because the public charge rule discourages non-citizens from accessing publicly funded health care and other public benefits that would support their health, it will weaken our fight against the spread of the virus. Um, for example, if their non-citizens who are eligible for Medicaid choose not to enroll and don't have the resources to pay for health care out of pocket, they will likely delay seeking treatment for symptoms of COVID-19 until they're in an emergency situation. And this means that, of course, they'll suffer disproportionately from untreated disease, and they'll also contribute to the uncontrolled spread of the virus, and that will continue to strain our healthcare system. Another consequence of the public charge rule is that non-citizens who've actually lost income due to the pandemic um, may decide not to enroll in other benefits like SNAP. Then they'll be in the difficult situation of having to make do with less. And that can put them at increased risk of exposure to the virus in 
several ways. Um, for one, it could mean more housing instability. So families may have to double up with another family or with friends, or they may have to go to a homeless shelter. Um, it might mean missing a utility bill payment, which can le lead to a utility shutoff. Uh, power and heat shutoffs can increase a family's exposure to the virus by suppressing the immune system. Um, a water shutoff can make it difficult to wash your hands or, or clean properly. Food insecurity has also been linked with reduced immune response and also increased susceptibility to communicable disease. So these are just some examples of how the public charge rule can weaken our efforts to combat the pandemic. Now, I should also note that in mid-March, the administration actually issued an alert modifying its public charge policy during the pandemic. Um, basically, what it says is that testing and treatment relating to COVID-19 that's subsidized by Medicaid won't be considered under the new uh, public charge rule. Um, it also said that if non-citizens use other public benefits, um, basically, they'll have an opportunity to provide evidence um, to U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services that their use of benefits was related to pandemic, uh, reasons related to the pandemic. So um, this was a partial acknowledgement by the administration of the negative public health consequences of the public charge rule. But I think it's unlikely that this alert will actually have an effect on non-citizens' decisions to enroll in public benefits. Um, for one, it's, it's too piecemeal, right? It only excludes certain services that are paid for by Medicaid. Um, and it also leaves too much discretion to individual immigration officers to actually consider <laughs> evidence about the pandemic-related reasons for enrolling in other public benefits. So it's not a, a clear policy. Um, I and, and many others, immigration advocates, health, uh, public health advocates, think that only a clear statement suspending the operation of the public charge rule during the pandemic will actually persuade non-citizens to seek testing and treatment for COVID-19 and enroll in those other benefits that'll support their health. Um, and in fact, in the ongoing litigation challenging the new public charge rule, uh, a group of state's attorneys general actually asked the Supreme Court to issue an injunction against the rule um, in light of the pandemic. And this request was denied four days ago, but it seems that the AGs are planning to continue the fight at the district court level. So the, the public charge issue aside, what more generally uh, the, is the status of the non-citizens' access to healthcare during the pandemic? And, and we've seen a lot of sort of new benefits introduced by some of these federal relief laws and some state actions. Um, so are, are, are these accessible, these benefits uh, uh, to non-citizens? Sure. So I'll address the question about um, non-citizens' access to healthcare. Uh, first. So um, in terms of the status quo, non-citizens' access to healthcare is highly variable based on geography, based on where they live, right? Um, the laws governing immigrant eligibility for federally funded Medicaid are incredibly complex. And um, this is because of Medicaid's cooperative federalism structure, right? Which gives states significant discretion to include or exclude various categories of non-citizens. In addition, uh, some states and localities use their own funds to provide healthcare benefits to non-citizens were excluded from federally funded Medicaid. So here's just one example of the extremes of state policy on immigrant access to health coverage. Um, in California, an undocumented 25-year-old is eligible for health coverage that's equivalent to full-scope Medicaid. In Texas, a person who has been a lawful permanent resident for 25 years is ineligible. Um, there is an existing federally funded healthcare benefit called emergency medical assistance that partially reimburses states for treating 
emergency medical conditions in uninsured people, um, regardless of their immigration status. So here, once again, that healthcare federalism comes in because states have broad discretion to define what exactly is an emergency medical condition. Some states like Pennsylvania, where I live, have said upfront that any COVID-related service, including testing, diagnosis, and treatment, will actually qualify for EMA, but not all states have done that. Um, in response to the pandemic, not much else has changed in terms of non-citizen eligibility for Medicaid. Um, Non-citizens can still access free or low-cost primary care services at federally qualified health centers and free clinics where they exist and continue to operate. Um, in addition, some local public health agencies provide very basic services like immunizations and communicable disease testing and treatment to all residents. However, uh, this administration's general crackdown on immigration enforcement and hostile immigration policies have actually discouraged many non-citizens from accessing these um, healthcare services. Uh, there hasn't been a clear change in immigration enforcement priorities in response to the pandemics. Raids have actually continued throughout this time. So people are still very worried about coming out of the shadows in any way, um, even to access healthcare. So now I'll just address um, some of the new benefits programs that have been created by the various COVID-19 relief laws. Um, so the Families First Coronavirus Response Act and the CARES Act. Um, the first two benefits I'll just talk about is emergency paid sick leave and the paid expanded family and medical leave. So emergency paid sick leave, this was a, a groundbreaking federal requirement that um, employers with fewer than 500 employees provide two weeks of paid leave for um, medical and caregiving needs related to COVID-19. And um, the expanded FMLA extended leave to include care for um, a child in school or daycare has been closed due to the pandemic. And importantly, it's paid. So for both of these, um, there are no immigration status related restrictions on these requirements. So in theory, um, even a non-citizen who is employed without work authorization could file a wage claim against their employer if they do not provide paid leave under these requirements. Um, next, the, the FFCRA also created um, a tax credit for self-employed workers um, who have to stop working for medical or caregiving reasons related to the pandemic. Um, again, no immigration status related restrictions, but you need to have filed taxes in order to get it, obviously. Uh, Non-citizens without social security numbers can file taxes using an individual taxpayer identification number, an ITIN, so they would also qualify um, for the tax credit. Um, unemployment insurance, right, there were big changes made to this, um, extending how long you can receive the benefit, adding um, $600 to the weekly payment for all recipients. And Congress also created a new pandemic unemployment assistance benefit, which covers workers like independent contractors who wouldn't have otherwise qualified for unemployment. Um, so in general, non-citizens who are work authorized are and always have been eligible for regular unemployment. Um, the eligibility criteria for the new benefit have not yet been issued. So it's unclear whether immigration will be uh, status will be considered in the pandemic unemployment assistance benefit. And then finally, um, the stimulus check, right? Under the CARES Act, um, individuals can receive a one-time check for $1,200 plus $500 per dependent child. Um, unfortunately, for some non-citizens, um, you need to have a social security number in order to get the check. So that will actually exclude a good number of non-citizens who pay taxes using an ITIN as well as their U.S. citizen family members. Well, thank you. That's a great summary. Wendy, last question. Let's go back to where we started and the border. What What's going on at the border? What's the current state of um, border-related uh, litigation and so on? Well, thank you. The border is, is, is closed, but obviously people are still crossing. And as I said, um, under the CDC regulations, people are being returned. What I think is particularly worrisome right now, especially during this pandemic, is the very high risk that people 
people are facing. Um, south of the border, people are being returned. They're staying in unsafe conditions, in overcrowded conditions at the border. There's very little medical care and um, really tremendously at risk. Litigation is mostly focused on what's happening to people inside the country, in detention facilities, both near the border and, frankly, immigration detention throughout the country. Um, and what is, you know, again, and we know this both for detention facilities, for immigration and prisons in general, all of these institutional settings are very dangerous, right? Right? People cannot socially distance. Hygiene is lacking. Healthcare is lacking. They really are, in the words of courts, that tinderboxes or infection. Um, there's a lot of litigation going on. Um, really a remarkable number of reported cases so far. I think it's been, from my perspective, heartening that many federal courts, um, including the judge overseeing the Flores decision in California, the Ninth Circuit cases, judges in New York and Pennsylvania, have ordered some releases of prisoners, uh, detainees, um, due to COVID-19, recognizing that people who are being held civilly, really their due process rights are threatened when they are put at this extraordinary risk of such a horrible disease. But I want to be clear, um, the releases are kind of going on an individualized piecemeal fashion. Um, some judges have said that it's only people who can make showings, only plaintiffs who can make showings of heightened individual risk due to pre-existing medical conditions, for example, who are being released. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing cases, five people being released here, 15 people there, courts saying, come back and show us more. So there has been some movement, but there's no question that a lot of people are still at risk, um, that the disease is spreading in detention facilities and prisons around the country. And, you know, there's a lot more litigation to come, unfortunately, and hopefully before there are more cases and death. Well, thank you, uh, Wendy and Meta, for uh, some great information. I've got a feeling we'll be uh we'll be coming back to this topic at least one more time uh thank you all for listening uh we'll be broadcasting here on twitter at noon eastern time every tuesday wednesday and thursday just go to at phlaw watch at phlawwatch or search for hashtag covid law briefing uh, show notes are at public health whatlawwatch.org the shows are archived by the week in health law podcast at www.twill.com uh the covid 19 Law and Policy Briefings are produced by Faith Kallick and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe.